Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you remember from last week, the whole issue was Absalom. David's son had conspired against David, wanted to take over the throne in Jerusalem, and so David was forced to flee and go into exile. And so basically... His friends kind of were on David's side. They were spies in the house, and basically at the very end, they saved David, and um, Absalom's plans were, were failed. Um, so I want you to remember, what was the one thing I told you that was like really noticeable about Absalom? What was he known for? His long rock star hair. Remember, he was, he's a man that had long hair. Well, I want you to remember his hair as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18. So let's turn to 2 Samuel 18, and we're just going to read verses 9 through 18. Everybody there? I'll wait till everybody gets there. So 2 Samuel chapter 18. Are you guys hearing like a pump popping noise through the mic? I, I think I felt like that on like pop like that. I heard that on Sunday morning. And I'm not sure if it's the position of my mic or if I, if, the, if I need a windscreen. That may be a little, is that a little bit better? Maybe it's too close to my face. <laughs> so, and when I breathe, you can hear it. So, I'm giving you time to get there, okay? <laughs> so, Second Samuel 18, starting in verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I, Absalom, hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For on our hearing, the king commanded Jew and Abishai and Etai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. <laughs> and he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Okay, David and his army are going to take over Absalom, and David gives instructions to Joab, his general, don't kill my son. I know he's treacherous, I know he's overtaken the throne, but don't kill him. Okay, so what happens to Absalom? He's riding on his mule. Okay, you picture it? What happens? Because of his wavy hair... He gets caught in an oak tree, and the mule keeps going. So he's hanging there suspended on a tree. And then a guy says, <laughs> Absalom's hanging from a tree. And Job's like, why didn't you kill him? You should have killed him while he was there. He's vulnerable. And the guy says, well, I can't do that because David said, don't kill his son. And Job says, Get out of the way, okay? Well, I'm, I don't care what David said. I'm the general. I'm going to disobey David's commands, and we need to kill this guy. So he sticks him with javelins, and then they kill him and throw him in a pit. Okay, so he's hung by his hair from a tree, and then he's thrown in a pit and has stones thrown on top of him. Now, you say, okay, that's an interesting, very 
interesting way to die. Let's ask the question, what's the significance in the way in which Absalom died? Now, before they put javelins in him, he was what? Hanging from a tree by his head. Okay. So he's hanging from a tree. What does Deuteronomy say about hanging from a tree? Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for your inheritance. A man who hangs from a tree is cursed of God. It's it's a public symbol for everyone that this person is cursed. So what is Absalom hanging from a tree? What's that a picture of? He's a wicked man. That's cursed of God. Okay, they stab him with javelins, but then what do they do? They throw him in a pit, and they cover him with stones. There are two other places in the Bible where people were thrown into a pit and covered with stones. And they're both in the book of Joshua. Do you remember Joshua, they went into the city of Ai, and Joshua said, don't take any of the devoted items And a man named Achan stole some of the devoted items, hid him in his tent, lied about it, got caught. He and his family got stoned to death for disobeying. And so listen to how Achan died. In Joshua 7.26, they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. They stoned Achan and put him to death, and then they piled stones on top of him. That's the same way that Absalom died. Now, the valley of Achor, Achor means trouble. Okay, so a wicked man, Achan, who stole and lied, his whole family was stoned to death, and after they were stoned to death, they were piles of rocks were thrown on top of them. That's a way to show that they were wicked. Okay, also in Joshua, five kings came as enemies to the Israelites, and Joshua kills the five kings by hanging them on a tree. Okay? So Joshua 10, 26-27, Afterward Joshua struck them, these are the kings, and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at that time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into a cave where they had hid themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. So how were these wicked kings killed? Hung from a tree, thrown in a cave, rock, stone piled there. So Absalom dies in the same way that these wicked men died before him. Hung from a tree, buried with piles of stones on top of him. Now, here's the reason why it's important that Absalom dies that way. With those motifs of hanging, being a curse. His death is a prototype or an example of what the future holds for those who set themselves up against God's kingdom, Christ as king, and refuse to bow to the lordship of Christ. Absalom died under the curse of God because he went against the true king. Okay, let's just make this a spiritual reality. If you do not bow to the true king Jesus, you will die under the curse of God and experience not a hanging from a tree or being piled up with stones, but the eternal reality of hell. And so Absalom's kind of a prototype or a picture of what it looks like to reject or go against the true king. Psalm 94, 12 through 13. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. A pit is dug for the wicked. So Absalom's tragic death is that he dies by hanging from a tree Joab goes against David. Now, Joab is a mysterious character. Okay, Joab is David's general. 
David specifically told Joab, and you can read earlier in, in chapter 18, David specifically says, do not kill my son. Have pity on my son. And Joab says, no. <laughs> I'm going against David's orders. This man has come against my king. He deserves to die. I'm going to go ahead and kill him anyway. Okay. And so you're like, okay, Joab. The, the, the narrator or the author of Samuel doesn't give us a, a judgment whether what Joab did was right or wrong. It just reports it for us. So Absalom is dead. Now, let's ask the question. Absalom is dead. David's still in exile. He needs to come back to Jerusalem. But David is sad about the death of his son. Now, even though Absalom was treacherous and Absalom went against David's kingdom, as his dad, David still has a heart for his son. And so when news gets back to David that his son has been killed, he begins to cry and to weep and to mourn. And basically, David kind of gets a little bit out of control in crying. And Joab, his general, has to go into him and say, David, pull it together. Okay, so that's where we're going to go next. So let's go to chapter um, 19. So chapter 19. Again, we're just kind of skipping over some things here to give you guys the big picture until we're really going to camp out in chapter 23 tonight, but I'm kind of giving you the, the timeline here. So Absalom has died. Joab and his men have killed him. Word gets back to David. David begins to weep. Joab gets upset with David, and we'll see what kind of happens here. So chapter 19, verse 1. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when, they're light, when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night." And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from the youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Okay, what goes on here? David's at a moment where he's weak as a leader. Now, he's naturally crying for his son. And Joab goes in and says, David, listen. Dude, you're going to lose your country if you continue this way. Because all these people have come to your defense. All these people have come and they fought for you. And, and you, we, we've got the kingdom back from, from Absalom. They've been on your side. And you're sitting there weeping for the enemy. You need to stop weeping. You need to be a man. You need to go out and you need to thank the people. And you need to be king. And you need to tell the people we're moving forward. Because if you keep coming in here and playing a pity party, the people are going to abandon you. They're going to think you're a weak leader. They're going to think you care more about your son Absalom than they care about you or your, your, your servants, your army, who came to your defense. So David, pull it together and go out there and be king. Okay, so, so Joab is a kind of an interesting character. He defied David earlier and killed Absalom. And here he's getting in the king's face and saying, you better you know, put your big boy pants on and go out there or you're going to lose the kingdom. You need to face the music. There's an appropriate time to, to grieve for your son, but he's the enemy. And everybody knows he's the enemy. And if you keep grieving like this, you're going to lose the kingdom. It's going to be worse for you than it was ever before because people are going to see you as a weak king that cares more about your son Absalom than those that fought on your side. Okay, so the king does go out and he addresses the people, he gets it together, and David does return to Jerusalem. Okay, so he's, he's coming back to Jerusalem. But as he comes back to Jerusalem, he's got to make some things right. He's got to restore some people that he thought were his enemies. Now, do you guys remember Ziba? We talked about Ziba a few weeks ago. And Mephibosheth. Okay, do you guys remember Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son who had the crippled feet. David gave him everything, let him live in his house. 
Well, when Absalom was taking over and David was fleeing from Jerusalem, remember Ziba came and lied to David? And Ziba said, Mephibosheth is turned against you. Mephibosheth is going on Absalom's side. He's staying in Jerusalem. And David gets really mad and says, how could Mephibosheth betray me like this? Well, when David goes back to Jerusalem, he realizes that he was lied to. And so he's got to go back to Mephibosheth and make things right and forgive him. Because all this time he thinks Mephibosheth has turned against him. So let's just see that happen real quick. So let's go down in chapter 19 to verse 24. Okay, everybody there? And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul. Tarina, are you in here? Did she leave? This is really embarrassing, but I'm going to need my reading glasses, and they're in my office on my desk. I've got two sets of glasses. I've got, I've got blue glasses for my computer, and I've got my reading I just I'm having a hard time reading this tonight, and um, I need to get a bigger print Bible. I will do my best to try to, try to read this, okay? So, verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king had departed until the day he came back into safety. Now that's kind of gross, okay? What, what is Mephibosheth doing? The day that David leaves, Mephibosheth is mourning and he's like, I'm not going to take care of my feet, so I'm sure he probably, I mean, think, I mean didn't shave. He's kind of a... <laughs> Kind of a gross, gross guy here. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? In other words, why did you betray me? Why did you stay here with Absalom? How come you didn't come? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. Remember Ziba is the servant. My servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who were not at your table. Uh, yeah, these are. Yeah, okay, yeah, these are good. Okay, that's a lot better. Okay, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death. Before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Okay, so what does Mephibosheth say? David's like, Why did you betray me? I'm leaving and going out of Jerusalem. Why didn't you come? And Mephibosheth says, I was lied to. Ziba came and he fooled me, lied to me, and you were already gone, and all I could do is to stay here and just mourn because there was a huge misunderstanding, and that's the reason why he didn't cut his hair and didn't take care of himself is he was in mourning, and then now David is back safely, and David's like, I'm going to restore everything to you. And, I, and actually, Z Mephibosheth says, don't worry about it. I'm just glad that you're back. So that relationship that was breached has been restored, and so now David is back in Jerusalem. The rebellion is over. Absalom is dead. Okay, in chapter 20 and 21, David has a few more skirmishes with some enemies. And then he has a war with the Philistines. And as God has always done, God delivers David because God has promised to be with David. And then we get to chapter 23. Okay, and that's where we're going to camp out tonight. This, we're transitioning, so we have three weeks left, tonight, next week, and the following week. We're transitioning to the final days of King David's life, okay? And so, your Bible may have a little title above chapter 23. Does it say the last words of David? Yeah. These are the last, these aren't technically his last words, but this is really a sermon that David preaches to the people. And so David, as great as a man as he was, after God's own heart, he was still sinful. Okay. David is, two things we saw last week. David is still a man after God's own heart, even though he sinned, because he's repentant and he's broken over his sin. And number two, he's still God's chosen man to be the king. 
And so God made an everlasting covenant with David. You remember the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What does God promise David? You are going to have an eternal throne. Now, do you think David understood all the implications of what it meant to have an eternal throne? Okay. David's probably thinking, (laughs) the throne looks kind of crazy right now because people are trying to take it from me and I've had all these problems. I can't even think about an eternal throne. Okay. So this promise of David having an eternal throne, Gabriel, the angel, announces it at the birth of Christ. So Luke 1, 31 through 33, listen to the angel Gabriel. Behold, he's talking to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we need to always remember that when God promised the throne to David, the eternal throne, it would ultimately come to fruition, to fulfillment in Jesus. And that was announced at Jesus' birth. And one day, at the end of the age, we'll see the final consummation of that when Jesus comes back. So, we come to David's last words. And we know they aren't technically his last words because there's a few more chapters where he speaks. But this is a sermon that he preaches. And I don't know if David understood the, the, the implications of what this sermon was, but this sermon is really all about Jesus, about the, the future king from David's lineage that would ultimately be the one to rule on the eternal throne. So here's the question that we have to ask And this is what David preaches for us. Here's the question for tonight. Is Jesus absolute Lord of your life? Okay, you guys ready to read it? Chapter 23. All right, here we go. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God, of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And here's the sermon. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like thorns. They're thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of the spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire okay now why do i say that david preaches a sermon because it says these are the last words of david the oracle of david the oracle what exactly is an oracle do you guys know what the word oral is when you have an oral exam what does that mean Something that you speak. Oral means to talk. Oracle comes from that word oral. It basically means a preached message from the lips of a prophet. So oftentimes when prophets would preach to the nation of Israel, it would say an oracle of so-and-so. And so so David here is preaching an oracle. Hello! (laughs) We're in 2 Samuel chapter 23. So, yep. So it's an oracle from David, which is very unusual. So when it says an oracle of David, this is actually a speech or a sermon or something that he is preaching uh, to the nation of Israel. 
But notice how David's described in verse 1. It's, it's very interesting. Before we actually see his words, notice how he's described. We have his genealogy. He's the son of Jesse. We find out that he is from the tribe of Judah. He's in the lineage of Jacob. We also see that he was a man who was raised on high. How did David start? Way back when we started this, back in January, when we first introduced to David. He was a shepherd boy, right? The youngest son, kind of a little, little pipsqueak. <laughs> but God raised him up to be the king. And then notice this, it says that he is the anointed. He's anointed, the God of Jacob. So he's the rightful king. And then it's interesting, he's also called the sweet psalmist of Israel. <laughs> so in this one verse, you have like the genealogy of David. You've got the history of David. You've got his anointed kingship of David, and you have him as the psalm writer. Um, so not only is he the, the powerful king, but also the sweet psalmist of Israel. And his psalms... The Holy Spirit inspired them, and they served as some of the most memorable portions of Scripture. You think about the Psalms that David wrote, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, all, all the different Psalms. Um, and actually, Psalm 78, 70 through 72. He chose David, this is God, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand. The youth are having fun out there, I guess. <laughs> so, he is the anointed king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and God's anointed man. Now, notice in verse 2, we actually have, and, and the ESV puts it in quotations here to show us these are actually the words of David. But notice how he starts. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. What David is saying is coming from the Holy Spirit. The same way that he wrote the Psalms. How did David write the Psalms? Those words came to him from the Holy Spirit. And notice what he calls God in verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken the rock of Israel has said to me. God himself, through the Holy Spirit, is giving these words to David to preach, to speak, the rock of Israel. And so, how many points are in David's sermon? Well, he's not a Baptist because there's not three. <laughs> it's a four-point sermon, okay. That was a little joke. Um, not all my sermons are three points in a poem, but... Um, as a matter of fact, this Sunday I have four points too. From David's sermon, we see four powerful assurances about Jesus as king. Now, why do I say these are about Jesus? David is speaking directly to his own people. He's talking about himself as king, but as we've seen all along, these are David is the prototype, is, is, a, is, is the, the, um, the king of Israel that's the prototype for the ultimate king of Israel, Jesus. So these are all things that we can say are about Jesus. And so remember the question that I asked a while ago. Is Jesus the absolute Lord of your life? And so David's going to address these issues as that overall question in these four truths. So here's, here's number one. And these are powerful assurances about Jesus. Number one, you can be assured that Jesus rules justly as sovereign Lord. Now notice verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. When one rules justly over men. Okay, who's David? He's the king. He ruled over men, right? He, who did David rule over in his reign? Israel. Okay. Who does Jesus as king rule over? All things. All people. And Jesus' rule will be just. And so 
one of the things we've lost in our current church culture, I think, is submission to the Lordship of Christ. Let me explain what I mean. A lot of people like Jesus as Savior, but they don't like the idea of Him being Lord. So if I were to go over to Walmart, or I were to go over to NJC, or I were to go over to Pioneer Park, or a gas station, and ask people this question, do you want to have your sins forgiven and go to heaven? I'm not saying everybody would say yes, but most people, maybe some people would say, sure, that sounds great. Who doesn't want their sins forgiven? Who doesn't want to go to heaven? You know, who doesn't want Jesus as their Savior? But what if I ask these same people another question? Do you want to submit your entire life under the rule of Jesus where he has the right to tell you what to believe and how to live and you have to adjust all your priorities and all your desires under him as your king? Uh, I like the going to heaven part, but I don't know if I like the second part. I like the I get out of hell free card with forgiveness of sins, but I don't like the lordship part. A lot of people like, hey, I'll, I'll take Jesus as my Savior because he can forgive me of my sins, but the lordship part, I'll take it or leave it. I don't really want a king that can tell me what to do. And here's the thing. You can't choose whether you're going to take Jesus as Savior and then neglect him as Lord. He is both Savior and Lord. You don't have the right to pick and choose how you want to take Jesus. Uh, listen to A.W. Tozer. He says this, The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe in a half Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who's King of kings and Lord of lords. He would not be who he is if he saved us and called us and chose us without the understanding that he also guides us and controls our lives. You can't take a half Christ. You can't take him as Savior but not take him as Lord. He is the Lord, and when you trust Him, you trust Him as your Lord. And, and some people make this statement, and I understand what they mean by it, but theologically it's not quite accurate. You hear maybe some people say, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I know what they mean by that. But it almost sounds like you're in the driver's seat. Like you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Well, whether you do that or not, He's still Lord regardless of what you do with Jesus he's still the Lord you don't make Jesus Lord of your life he is Lord by virtue of who he is you just surrender to him as who he rightfully is you don't make him anything he already is Lord and you submit to him and so you bow to Christ and this is what Philippians 2 10 through 11 says at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, let's be very clear on this whole issue of lordship. Because we kind of throw this word around in church a lot. Okay, Is Jesus Lord of your life? Let me, let me just make it very clear here. Here's what the lordship of Christ means. It means that Jesus has sovereign right and control over every area of your life and that he alone has the authority to tell you what to believe and how to live. Every area of life. Now, let me just address three areas of life that most people struggle with. Most people. Now, you, I'm not saying everybody here tonight is going to struggle with these, but I'm just going to say most people in my pastoral experience struggle with these three things and you may disagree with me but it's all right this is what we're doing for tonight marriage money and sex marriage money and sex if i were to pull our congregation and i could take everybody in our congregation and spend a month with each person individually privately in my office and i were to say to them what are you struggling with? Now, I'm not, I haven't done this, so don't think, don't think I do this, but I'm just saying it would be my guess that there would be some people that would come in and say, you know what, 
we're struggling in our marriage. It's not the way it should be. We are struggling. My marriage is not healthy. Others may come in and say, you know what, Pastor Sean, I'm struggling with temptation and lust and sex and um, pornography, and I'm tempted to just give in to sexual temptation. Others may come in and say, you know, it's not marriage, it's not sex. They may come in and say, you know what, we're in debt up to our eyeballs, and we've got some major financial troubles, and it's causing problems in my family, it's causing problems in my business. Uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle it. And so there's probably other areas, but what I'm saying is, is this. Is Jesus Lord over your marriage? Is Jesus Lord over your sexuality and temptations? Is Jesus Lord over your money and finances? Does he have control or do you? Lordship means you can't choose or compartmentalize which part of your life you're going to give to Jesus. Jesus, I'll give you my life when I'm at church, but the rest of my life, I'm in control. Or Jesus, I'm going to give everything to you but X. I'm still going to hold on to that. He is Lord of all. And so, the Lordship of Christ. Listen to some of the passages of Scripture that talk about the Lordship of Christ. Uh, We often talk about Jesus being our Savior, which we should, and that that is the gospel, Jesus as our our Lord and Savior. Um, So Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, it's one thing to profess Jesus as Lord It's another thing to, in your life, have that lived out in in following the Lord. Um, So evidence that you've been saved is that you will follow Him as your Lord. Okay, Romans 10, 9-10. It's a famous passage we use when when we're witnessing or sharing the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the, ma- the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You confess Jesus as your Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, I'm not the way Paul says so-called, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things or for whom we exist, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We would not even exist without the Lord, Jesus Christ, over us. How, how, how do we exist? How does anything exist? Hebrews 1.3 answers that. Jesus, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus upholds the entire universe with His power as Lord. Colossians 1, 16-18. Again, talking about Jesus. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, what's the word there? Preeminent. Superior. All right? James 4, 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. 
you can make plans, and you should, but ultimately things are going to happen if the Lord wills. It's not just a trite saying to say, Lord willing. That's usually what I say. If somebody says, are you going to be coming tomorrow? Lord willing, if the Lord wills. I'm planning on it, but God may change those plans because he's sovereign and he's in control. And then 1 Peter 3, 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. What I wanted to show you is just how many passages of Scripture talk about Jesus as Lord. He is Savior and Lord. All right. What's number two in David's sermon here? Back to 2 Samuel 23. Number two, you can be assured. Remember, these are assurances that are prophesied about Jesus. You can be assured that Jesus brings light and life to sinners. Look at verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light, like sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Notice the imagery there that David's using. Light shining, light dawning, making things grow. Well, what do we find out about Jesus? In John 1, 4-5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here's the question. Do you follow Jesus as the light? I think I've told you this story before. Senior skip day. A group of us went camping in the mountains down in the Wolf Creek Pass area, and I decided at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon to take my friends up on this hiking trail to go to these hot springs, and I miscalculated how far it was. I'd backpacked there before. You know, I thought it was like maybe like a 45-minute, hour-long hike. Well, I forgot it was like three hours. And so, like, I'm climbing up there, and everybody's like, Sean, we're done. We're not, how far is this? It's just around the corner. How far is this? Just around the corner. We're going back down. And I'm like, okay, give me just a moment. I'll go run up ahead and see how far it is to get there. So I go running up into the mountains, and um, I realize it's kind of far away. Well, by that time, it got dark. And I'm like, this is stupid. I don't even have a flashlight. And so I'm like, I don't have a flashlight. I'm wearing shorts. There's still, this was like in May, late May, there's still like patches of snow all over the place. So I said, okay, I better get back because they're probably heading down. So I turn around and I run back and I land in this snow, this patch of snow. And as I step into the snow, I get waist deep into the snow. So I'm stuck waist deep in the snow. I don't have a flashlight and I start hearing these bear noises around me. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm stuck in the snow, I don't have a flashlight, and I'm sitting there freezing cold, and I'm thinking, Sean, you're the most stupid guy that's ever lived. What was your idea going up here on this trail without a light, in the dark, on a path that you don't really know where you're going, you think you know where you're going? And finally, I wiggled myself out and just kind of ran down the hill, and they had already like left by then, and I, and I met them at the base camp. So what's the point of that whole story? Don't ever go on a trail without a light. Don't try to chart your own course without a light. Okay, spiritual application. Don't chart your own course in life without Jesus as a light. Because if you do, you'll get in trouble. When you plan your own things, when you go off half-cocked, when you try to, try to go out in the dark doing your own thing... It's dangerous, it's stupid, and other people can, get, can, get, can, can, can have the effects of it. So follow Jesus as the light. And that means understanding sin. Isaiah 66.3 is a very interesting passage of Scripture. It says, These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. They've chosen their own ways. In other words, they've chosen to go their own way, 
And when you choose to go your own way, you love to sin. You del- what it means to delight in abom- abominations means just things that are sinful. And to delight in them means you love them. So when you're going your own way and not following Jesus as a light, you're basically saying, I love to sin. So, do you follow Jesus as the light? Revelation 14, 4 describes Christians as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Do you follow Jesus wherever He goes as the light of the world, or do you follow your own path? Do you chart your own course? Some of you, I've, I've read this poem before, and I actually I think I quoted this in my book. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, it's, it's the poem Invictus. You guys, it's, it's by an English poet, William Ernest Henley. You've probably heard the lines to Invictus, but let me read to you. It's not on your sheet, but um, this is like in American ethos of who we are. It says this, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Isn't that most people's attitude today? I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm in charge of my life. Thank you very much. I don't care about Jesus as Lord. I don't care about following him. I'll chart my own course, and I'll do my own thing. I'll follow my own light. If you follow your own light, here's the irony. It's actually darkness. (laughs) That's a sad thing. If you follow your own light, it's actually darkness. If you follow Jesus, you're no longer walking in the darkness, but you're walking in the true light. So when David here says he dawns on them like the morning light, like light shining forth on a cloudless morning, it's talking, it's a prophecy about Jesus being the light of the world to guide our paths, to lead our paths. Okay? So, what's assurance number three from David's sermon here in 2 Samuel 23? Number three, you can be assured that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy as the eternal son of David. Look at verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. David says, he's going back to 2 Samuel 7 there and saying, God has made with me an everlasting covenant. That everlasting covenant ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But notice what David says in verse 5. For does not my house stand with God? Does not my house stand with God? It's a great question for you. Do you stand? Does you and your house stand with Jesus? Do you confess him as Lord? Or are you ashamed of the gospel and do you not stand up for him? What does it mean to stand with God? To stand up for Jesus? To not be ashamed? We have a lot of... um, I want to be careful how I say this. Maybe I should should just say it and not be careful. (laughs) Um... My perception is right now we have a lot of cowardly Christian leaders who don't want to stand up for truth and be bold. And it's fear, fear of man. Fear that I'm going to lose people in my church. Fear I'm going to lose my job. Fear I'm going to get attacked from the media. Fear I'm going to um, be maligned. And so they may have strong convictions, but they don't ever say anything. More than ever, we need Christian leaders who will not just have strong convictions, but say those convictions, stand on those convictions, and be willing to take the ramifications that come in doing that. Um, And you guys know I put myself there on the front line of of things like this, but um, I think all of us just need to be reminded, are we standing with God's truth? Are, Are we in our household standing upon biblical truth? Are we standing with Jesus, or are we ashamed? Are we embarrassed? Luke 9, 23-26. Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life 
for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Being ashamed of Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed. Now, does that mean that we won't ever suffer if we stand? Yes. In today's culture, if you stand for biblical truth and stand for Jesus, there will be arrows, there will be name-calling, there will be ramifications, and we need to expect that. Now, it's not as bad as it could be like in North Korea where you're thrown in jail or you're beheaded or you're in prison, but there is a lot of pressure mounting to be silent. And so I know a lot of pastors that on paper say they believe certain things, but they would never say it from their pulpit for they're afraid that they're going to offend people. And I've told you guys this before. I mean, I've been here 17 years. (laughs) I figure by now... <laughs> you guys know where I stand on stuff, and I've said if there's five of you here or there's 500, I'm still going to preach the same truth uh, because I'm accountable to the Lord for being faithful to His Word. And so the question here is God, or, or the issue here is God has made an eternal covenant with David, and that's given him hope. But notice what He says: Does not my house stand so with God? That's the issue. Issue: Do you stand? with Jesus as your Lord. All right, here's the fourth thing that David brings up in his sermon. You can be assured that Jesus will bring judgment to those who reject him as king. Now, it's interesting how David ends this. This is almost like a psalm. Verse 6, Worthless men are like thorns and are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. The enemies of God will be consumed with fire. Now, he says worthless men. The word worthless in the Hebrew means wicked. Wicked men fit for destruction. God will bring judgment. Let me give you guys a quote from a liberal theologian in 1937. In 1937, Richard Niebuhr, a liberal theologian, said this, and I think it could be said today. This is his quote. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Let me say that again. A God without wrath. Do people like to talk about God's wrath today? Brought men without sin. Do we like to talk about sin today? Into a kingdom without judgment. Do we like to talk about judgment today? Through the ministry of Christ without a cross. Do we like to talk about the cross? So somehow in today's culture, the idea of eternal punishment is losing a lot of, of grip on, on evangelicals. Um, Jesus, and, and, we, and a couple of weeks ago, you know, I preached through the parable of rich man and Lazarus, and I talked a lot about hell in that sermon. And Jesus talks more about hell than anybody. But Matthew 13, 41 through 43, The Son of Man will send His angels, this is at the second coming, they will gather out His kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Why do you think David used the imagery of fire in verse 7? The wicked will be consumed with fire. So we just need to understand, and, and I know you do, the dire and eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus as absolute king of your life. So, these are the last words of David. Not technically, but the way it's written here is kind of the last sermon that he preaches. 
And everything is about Jesus being King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises made to David. He's the ultimate son of David. He's the king. So how do you view Jesus? Some questions. This is kind of how our culture views Jesus, but hopefully not how you view Jesus. He's a good teacher with some moral sayings about how to be nice to each other. That's what progressive Christianity looks at Jesus. They say, oh, he's just a good teacher. He says some cool things about how we need to be nice to one another. Or he's a kind man. He never judged and was totally accepting of any type of lifestyle. Jesus would never judge or do anything. Jesus is all about love. Or some people would say, you know what? Jesus is a life coach. He makes you successful. He gives you your best life now. He's a life coach that gives you tips on how to have a better life. Or maybe Jesus is a bank teller at your beck and call to give you everything you want. Or he's a cosmic vending machine. Or maybe he's a divine healer who promises you will never be sick, never get cancer, never have any disease. Or maybe Jesus is a therapist who makes you always have a positive self-esteem and you're always happy and you're always positive. Sadly, many people view Jesus like that. But not as king or Lord, or master of, master of their lives. There's an interesting book by David Wells. He's written four, it's a trilogy, this is not part of the trilogy, but he's written four books. The first one came out in 93, then the second one came out, I think, in 95, then 98, then around 2005. But it's basically, these four books are basically him saying, the evangelical church in America has gotten so anemic and so weak. What's happened? And he tries to diagnose that and says how we need to get back to biblical truth. But this book, um, God in the Whirlwind, is one of, it's a newer book. I think it came out maybe five, six, seven years ago. But he's got an interesting um, quote in there, in that book. He says, when God, the external God, dies then the self immediately moves in to fill the vacuum. But then something strange happens. The self also dies. And with it goes meaning and reality. Now what does he mean by that? Kind of a profound quote. Let me, let me just unpack it for you. When we place ourselves on the throne of our lives as king and kick Jesus out of his rightful place to rule, we think we're going to thrive. We think we're going to be happy. We think we're going to be in charge, but the exact opposite happens. We don't thrive. We don't feel satisfied. We don't experience joy or the meaning we thought we'd get. We get just the opposite. See, here's what a lot of people try to do. If I was just in control of my life and God was not, then I'll be happy. I'll be in control. I'll be satisfied. I'll be the ruler. I'll kick God out. I'll be in charge. What happens when you dethrone God and you become the God? What you quickly find out is, is that it's not what it's all cracked up to be. You end up feeling empty and dissatisfied and guilty, and you never have that joy that only Christ can give you. You guys remember The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I've read the book and I've seen the movie. Do you remember when um, the children go into the wardrobe and they end up going into the magical thing of Narnia and then the first people they meet, well, Mr. Tumnus is who Lucy meets, but you remember the beaver family? They meet the beavers and they go into the little beaver den and they're, they're eating dinner with the beavers and Mr. Beaver begins to tell about Aslan. Aslan the, the lion. And he'll, he says, you know, Aslan's the king of Narnia. Then Lucy says, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good, I tell you. Here's the point. Jesus isn't safe, but he's good. Why is Jesus not safe? Because as Lord, he will make demands upon you. He will threaten your security. He will shake up your priorities. He will demand ultimate allegiance. He will challenge you to take up your cross daily and follow Him. And He demands repentance and following Him and a life that is not all about you, 
And that's not safe. But it's good. Because who's in charge? Jesus, not you. So, do you bow to Jesus as rightful king to rule your life? Do you follow Jesus as the only light who can bring you true life? Do you stand with Jesus and boldly confess him as Lord? Do you fully understand the consequences of rejecting him as absolute Lord of your life? If you do reject him, there's hell. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. And that's all I got tonight, guys. So we're done a half an hour early, unless you guys have tons of questions to bombard me with. Or if there's tons of questions online. Do you guys have questions, comments? I'll even take snide remarks tonight. I'm going to repeat what you said, Nancy. Stand, Nancy said we need to stand on the truth in politics. Let's unpack that. Let me make a few statements. Number one, is politics alone the answer to the ills in our culture? No. The only answer to the ills in our culture is spiritual awakening, the gospel changed hearts. Only God can change hearts and any laws that are passed or any person that's in Congress, any person that's you know, in leadership, they can't change hearts. Okay, yet, nevertheless, with that being said, do we as individual Christians have a responsibility to get involved in the political process to make sure that righteousness is exalted in our nation and that things are done that are pleasing to God? Yes. Okay. Just, it's not, an, it's not, a, it's not a, like either or. It's not, well, it's just the gospel and gospel will change hearts. Yes, ultimately, the gospel will change hearts. But here's my opinion. While we still have a free nation that's, that's, that has the Constitution and we have the freedoms and we have the power to change because we are a constitutional republic governed by the people with natural rights from our God endowed by our Creator, we should pursue every avenue we have to bring about righteousness in the land. And that comes through the passing of laws. That comes through getting involved in local politics. And, and politics is a big word. Politics can be anything from serving on your school board, showing up at a PTA meet or a school board meeting, to getting involved in any type of, um, you know, like we have the Caring Pregnancy Center here that, does, that, that we give, you know, that actually the baby bottle campaign is going to be happening here real quick. Um, you know, helping to get involved in pro-life causes, um, voting for county commissioners all the way up to how you vote for, I mean, this year's midterm elections would be, be that. The hard part, here's the hard part. I'm, try, I'm, gonna get, I'm getting kind of political here, so I've got to be really careful. No, I don't. <laughs> the hard part is we in northeastern Colorado are in red territory but are in a blue state. And so a lot of the decisions that are made on the front range reflect a different worldview and a different political outlook than the majority of the people that live out here. And so we feel helpless at times because we feel like, well, I'm in, I live in Colorado and I vote every, like me, it's like, you're, okay, I vote every time we, there's a thing to vote, you know, I'm, I'm involved but what impact do we have out here because we're outnumbered by Boulder, Fort Collins, and parts of Denver, and so it gets kind of frustrating. Um, and what I would say is don't est underestimate the impact you can make locally to change your local. Because ultimately what's going to impact us is it, where you're going to be impacted the most is on the local level. What happens in Sterling? What happens in your school? What happens in this area? Now, some of you, like Noshana, you work for an, interna not an international company, but you work for a company that has, we've talked about that, of different things that they have. And I know, you know, when my wife worked at the prison, they had different things. And um, 
so you're not immune to it, but the gospel is ultimately the only answer that's going to change hearts through Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that we should not be bold in our political stances to be able to, to make a change. Does that, does that make sense, Nancy? Mm-hmm. Well, I know like... Um, Hillsdale College has those free free classes on the Constitution and stuff, and Prager U, Prager University. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. We're thankful for this oracle or this sermon from David that it's all about you, Jesus, a prophecy about your lordship, how you have rights over every part of our lives, and Lord, help us to, to realize that, that you are absolute Lord. And that, Lord, we want you to be Lord over every part of our lives and that um, you are the light of the world. We want to follow you so we don't walk in darkness. We know, Jesus, that when we chart our own path, it gets us in trouble. So help us to, to follow you. Help us to be strong. Help us to not be ashamed, but to stand for truth in all areas of our life, Lord. Um, help us as a church to stand strong in our truth. Help us as families. Um, Lord, whatever... whatever um, avenue or area at our jobs, in our communities, in our schools, wherever it is that you've placed us, Lord, help us to be um, a voice of, of boldness, a voice of, of hope that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do pray for revival in our land. We do pray for spiritual awakening. We do pray for our leaders, especially the leaders that do things that are wicked. We pray that you would change their hearts. Uh, we pray for um, decisions that are made at the highest level, that you would um, let righteousness and godliness reign in our land. And so, Lord, we just um, pray for your will to be done and your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.